All right, let's do the second part of uh, cancer now. Now, one thing to notice with pediatric cancers in this slide is that compared to the hundreds and thousands of cases every year with adult cancers, you'll notice that the pediatric cancers are very rare. You're, ta oops, you're talking about 12,000 cases a year versus you know, over a half of a million in adults. So pediatric cancers by themselves are pretty rare. There has not been a whole lot of changes in the types of cancers that kids have because they seem to be totally unrelated to the kinds of causes that it cause adult cancers. Uh, so, the, so the rates here, you're talking about about 1,400 kids, kids a year. Survival rates have improved. Most of the survival improvements have come from better management of the treatment more so than um, the, the newer chemotherapies or newer uh, treatments. There are a few, there are a few meds, but amazingly, when I started in pediatric oncology 28 years ago, and I see the drugs that we're using today on the oncology unit, most of them are all the same. There's only a few that I see that are new. But we have better management of infections because of some of the antibiotic management. Uh, some of the treatment protocols are better because kids are able to get uh, into remission with fewer drugs or lower doses of drugs. That's really been um, the, biggest, the biggest change. Um, so kids aren't dying of the complications that they, that they did before. Uh, you hear the t term cure used in cancer. It generally means that you show no signs of the cancer and need no treatment for, depending on the, who's defining it, between two and five years. Most people seem to say if you can go five years with no signs of the cancer and need no treatments for that cancer, you are considered cured. However, kids with, pedi with pediatric cancers who were treated back in the 60s and 70s are now having cancers recur or having cancers occur but they're different kinds of cancers. They're not the same cancer. They're getting different kinds of cancers. And why do you suppose that is? Why 20 years later are they getting different cancers at a higher rate than you would be expecting? They're more susceptible to it now? They're more susceptible? That might be, Elise? Right. They, some of, a lot of the treatments involved radiation treatments, and so that, that increases your later, later risk in life. What else? Right. The chemotherapies themselves are mutagenic. The chemotherapies themselves can cause cancer. So you end up being cured of one cancer, but then later in life may, may be at greater risk for, for other cancers. So keep, so just, um, we don't usually talk about that a whole lot, <laughs> um, but it is starting to show up. And what the hope is, particularly for like leukemias that are very, very curable, most of the treatment protocols have, for the last 20 years have worked on reducing the amount of radiation and reducing the amount of chemotherapy that's used during the treatment so that, that those longer term things don't occur. Uh, this, this shows that um, cancer rates uh, have, a, have had a slight rise in the last 35 years. Uh, mortality rate has a slight decrease. Again, this is mostly due to better, treat, better management 
Uh, some of the, the increase in rates is actually probably, uh, it may be also a function of um, just lower infant mortality. So you have more kids alive, more kids ha are, are, have an opportunity to get cancer that didn't, that didn't before. Um, some of you may have seen things where they talked about environmental factors, uh, like sometimes people say, oh, everybody in that town, that kid, those towns are coming down with certain kinds of cancer. Unless there's something like radiation um, that's measurable, uh, chemicals like PCBs that are measurable, uh, there haven't been any environmental links. One thing you might sometimes hear about is uh, electrical lines and things like that, but they've looked and looked and looked and, no, and don't see really any, any link um, between that exposure to electromagnetic radiation and, and cancers. Uh, with the pediatric cancers, you can see the, the majority of them are either leukemias or brain cancers. Uh, the leukemias are very treatable. The brain cancers aren't as aren't as treatable because it's hard to get chemicals into the brain. Chemotherapies are resistant to crossing the blood-brain barrier for the most part because of the, the size of the molecules, and so they're so they uh, and because of the uh, location of some of the some of the brain tumors, they're not you can't get even get remove them surgically. Uh, Leukemias seem to be very, are because they're in the fast growing, uh, start in the fast growing bone marrow cells, they're very susceptible to treatment and very susceptible to, um, the, to killing off the cancer cells without killing off the rest of, your, rest of your cells. And you can see that the other cancers are much, much smaller in number. And this is also a tribute and also has made uh, longer term uh, research of uh, treatment's difficult because you're only talking about a few hundred kids a year diagnosed with these, some of these cancers. And so it means that you don't have a whole lot of research that you can do when you have very, very small numbers. When you're talking about lung cancers and things like that where you have hundreds of thousands of people affected, you can do protocols, you can do research studies, you can try different things and you have large groups, large sample sizes that you can then say whether or not the effects you're seeing are real or not. But when you're talking about very small sample sizes, um, uh, then it's, it's much, much harder to show uh, whether or not a, a change in treatment is going to have any effect. And also for a lot of the pediatric cancers, the effects are, are, are very long term. Why do kids get cancer? It's not really known. There's thought to be some kind of genetic predisposition. I've seen infants born with cancer. Um, most of them, most, the most common leukemias seem to occur uh, in, a, in uh, the preschool years. You see two-year-olds, three-year-olds. Uh, very often the leukemia begins there. There's thought that maybe there's a virus or something that's maybe an innocuous virus that is then triggering uh, this to occur or that there's, and as I said, if they're in a, some kind of carcin carcinogenic environment that hasn't yet been identified. Uh, all we can say is as long as you're not being exposed to multiple viruses, radiation, and chemicals during, during pregnancy, that's about the best we can do. But even, with, but even with the babies that I've seen with cancer, you look at the prenatal history and none of those things seem to apply. So, so nobody really, really knows. Um, they did see there was interesting that, that um, with a, I'm trying to remember the study now. 
Oh, there was a, they just thought it was interesting that, that kids that uh, attended daycare and had asthma had lower rates of ALL and AML. And so they're thinking that somehow that has to do with, uh, with immune responses and uh, exposure, exposure to infections. If they were infected at an older, younger age, they seem to have lower rates. If they didn't get their first colds and things like that at an older age, they had higher rates. What that means, nobody's quite sure. With the pediatric cancers, unlike the adult cancers where there is some familial uh, hereditary uh, effects or, or prediction that you can do, there really isn't for the pediatric cancers. Um, it's usually found, very often nurses find it in regular well-child visits. You know, NPs, if you're, if you're thinking about being an NP, or if you're a school nurse, anywhere where you're, where you're evaluating uh, kids, you, may, you might find them. These are the warning signs of childhood cancer. They are different from, you'll see they're different for the most part from the adult cancers. And the, the two I put in red here are the ones that, more, that are very often seen. One is the increased bruising and prolonged low fever. A lot of kids will have this temperature that's in the 99 maybe, 99 and a half, and it just persists. And the child might have a um, fatigue, be kind of tired, be kind of cranky, but there's nothing otherwise that anybody really notices. And so sometimes the parents will just think, well, he's got a cold, he's just tired. They load him up with Tylenol. You know, in the old days when, when parents gave the kids aspirin, they would often start to bleed. They'd have really high levels of bleeding out of the nose and in the, in the urine and stuff like that. And that was what would bring them into the doctor. Uh, because it was so uh, unusual, we don't give kids aspirin anymore, so you don't you don't see that history uh, like we used to. Um, so you see it very often this this paleness, the the fatigue, uh, or they begin to complain of some kind of localized pain somewhere in their gut or in a in a limb. Sometimes it'll uh, because of where the uh, if it, if there's a tumor that's affecting a nerve, it can cause them to have a limp. Complaints of headaches, vision changes, usually blurriness or difficulty focusing. Um, that's a, those things are usually associated with brain tumors. Uh, and a lot, of the, a, lot of, a lot of the cancers, the kids begin to lose weight or aren't growing like they, you would expect them to. Remember, kids are growing at a pretty high rate. Every six months you look at a kid, they're going to be bigger than they were six months before. And then you see that that's slowing down with the kids. With adults, things, um, there, remember I told you all, all cells can become uh, cancerous. Mostly it seems to be exposure to a carcinogen. What's a carcinogen? A cancer causer. So car, carcino is cancer, gen is, is cause or create carcinogen plus those predisposing factors or something about some, some people just seem to be more predisposed to it than others. And this is one of the reasons why you can see the guy, there was a guy on the news the other day, he was 100, was he 100 or over 100 in England, jogged in a marathon, <laughs> took him 10 hours. What a slow poke. But his training regimen consisted of um, eight pints of beer a day, and 14 cigarettes. 
So the, the, the point is, is that doesn't mean that I can go smoke 14 cigarettes a day and I'll be able to run a marathon when I'm 100 because the majority of those people are dying who smoke regularly. But there does seem to be some people that just don't get affected by the chemicals, that there's something about their genetic makeup that is resistant to those carcinogenic uh, chemicals. So all you can do is, is avoid it. You can see that if, if men who don't smoke can get lung cancer. It does occur. Um, who was the comedian? Andy Kaufman died of lung cancer. He did not smoke, ever. he never smoked. But he was in that 1% of cancer cases, that, that lung cancer cases, that occur in non-smokers. And again, it could be just from, you know, that's one of the concerns about second, secondhand smoke. Um, people who live in industrial areas have higher rates of lung cancer even if they don't smoke. So there's, you know, the stuff we breathe does affect us. Um, early detection is your best, best uh, help for, for surviving. We talked about some of the environmental causes. These are, these are things that are, uh, that are found in, the nitrosamines are found in food. The aromatic hydrocarbons are found in a lot of plastics, uh, insulating materials, the PCBs. Um, asbestos. Is, is actually they're starting to say that that might not be so much of the cancer, but the um, what's the the other thing that affects your lungs? I can't remember. That comes from asbestos. No, there's a hmm? yeah, it's yeah, but there's another there's another term there's another I can't remember what it is, but it, it goes from asbestosis and then can converts to another thing. Uh, yeah, and also just remember too that that people who who have are more promiscuous sexually tend to have more uh, cervical you know, women will have more um, cervical cancers in particular. Warning signs, and these are the things that that if you're taking care of adults, you need to be uh, looking for. These are things that adults should know that they should report if they start to, to see them. So any bowel or bladder changes. So most people kind of know how often they have to pee, how often they have to poop. If they're doing this now, suddenly not going at all or having to go frequently, or they're starting to see blood in their urine, particularly blood in their urine, blood, frank blood in their stools. This is one of the reasons why we do hemocult tests. Everybody familiar with a hemocult? where you actually check, check stool for, for signs of blood because sometimes you can't see the blood. It gets digested and so you don't see it in the stool, but you can check for the, for the um, remnants of it in a hemocult test. It's not the most ideal, you know, it's not a, it's not a perfect screen. You're, you're much better off with colonoscopies. We're going to talk the, uh, next um, Monday about uh, colon cancers and, and uh, assessment diagnosis of them um, but it does it helps people think of, it gives them a better chance of identifying a colon cancer early sores that don't heal people's people's ability to heal uh, reduces any signs of bleeding any kind of discharges that are coming out of places that normally wouldn't of course are are a concern uh, anytime you start to notice lumps and thickenings um, and things on your skin, you know, it's really, one of the problems is as you, as you age, you get spots and things all over your body and little skin tags and things like that. And for the most part, those things are benign. They're not a problem. But if any of those begin to change shape, if they become irregular in size, if they begin to grow, 
that's a concern. And the problem is we can't always see our own bodies so, so, so well. So if you have a, a friend, a partner, or a spouse who can be looking at your back, for example, and, and just kind of doing a little inventory of what's there, it's a, it's a, a, good, it's a good idea. And the more you sunbathe, the more, the more you engage in that kind of behavior, the more often that you should be inspected uh, for those kinds of, those kind of changes. Uh, a lot of the esophageal cancers and GI cancers are associated with difficulty swallowing, uh, indigestion, people suddenly saying that they can't, you know, where they enjoyed a meal before, now it never, never seems to digest right, or they, or they even have difficulty even eating in the, in the first hand. And with the lung cancers, persistent coughing or hoarseness is associated. And so, so, it's, these are, so there are warning signs. Typically, though, we ignore them. You know, people will just say, well, it'll go away. I'm not going to think about it. And they don't get checked out. So that, uh, with a lot of cancers, if they're detected early, your chances of survival are much, much greater. How is cancer detected? So you've got somebody who's got warning signs, and they then would, would then have prescribed for them diagnostic tests. So tests of the blood, particularly for any of the leukemias and things like that, can give an indication that's a, that there could be a problem, although a blood test alone will not tell you whether or not you have leukemia. The only way to, the only way to truly assess for somebody's leukemia is what, you know? Bone marrow biopsy, bone marrow aspiration. You have to, they have to actually have to look at the bone marrow, see where the stem cells are, at what point in their development are they creating the leukemic white cells. That is how it's diagnosed. So just because you have a high white count doesn't mean you have leukemia. Um, spinal puncture, lumbar punctures, uh, looking in spinal fluid, because a lot of the uh, neurologic cancers, brain cancers, there will be cells, cancerous cells in the CSF, and they can be identified. Um, one of the most common things is just a biopsy. That means we go into wherever we suspect that there's a cancer. Uh, usually it's identified either because there's a, somebody feels something and it's identified, and nowadays we usually use CAT scans and MRIs to localize where that lump is, and then actually put a needle into it and draw a few cells out, and then a pathologist looks at them and determines whether or not they're cancerous, and then de determines if they are cancerous, what stage of cancer are they, how far along uh, are they in the, in the cancer? So, uh, so along with actually physically getting the cells, we also use a lot of visualization, and that's so things where we can't actually get to the to the cancer cell itself, but we can look at it uh, with a with a CAT scan or an MRI, and a lot and some surgeries require an exploratory surgery where they'll open you up, do a, do a uh, laparoscopic surgery, and and either re remove. Uh, whatever cells they're, they're questioning and, and have them checked to, be, to visually look at the cell. When they look at a cell and they call it cancerous, a cancerous cell is, is called a neoplasm. And a neoplasm just means an abnormal tissue growth. A neoplasm is not necessarily cancer. All cancers are neoplasms, but not all neoplasms are cancer. <laughs> Okay, because some neoplasms can be benign. 
It means you have a growth that occurs, but it's not, it, but it's not spreading. It's not metastasizing, meaning that it's going to another part of the body. So you can just have an encapsulated growth. It can be considered neoplastic because it's abnormal. That's what the neoplastic mean, neoplasm means, but it doesn't mean you have, can it doesn't mean you have cancer, so keep that, in, keep that in mind. Then there's two things about neoplasms that are a concern. One is malignant. And that is, and the word malignant means resist treatment and metastases. And that is when a, when a neoplasm starts in one part of your body and then goes to the other. If we heard, when I was talking about my dad earlier, he started, he started with a bladder tumor and then it metastasized to his liver. So a secondary tumor then occurred in the liver. A lot of cancers, that's where they metastasize. They either metastasize to the lung uh, or to the liver. That's to, that's, that seems to be the most common places for that to occur. You don't see usually metastases to like a osteogenic sarcoma of the bone or something like that. Those, those things are not, not as likely to occur. So those, these are terms you, sh you should be familiar with because you're going to see them um, in almost any adult setting. You're going to be running any adult because of the prevalence of cancer. Any of you working in any kind of adult medical surgical setting, you're going to be running into somebody who has some form of cancer, either early, middle, or late in treatment. Now, neo neoplasms are classified on, on and there's a, a grading and a staging that's done. The grade is from zero, some, some use a zero to three, some use a zero to four. And it means with, with zero meaning it's normal tissue, with four meaning it's as poorly differentiated. Remember I said that the, the cells that become cancer stop doing the job they're supposed to do? They don't just look like all or none. What happens is, is they start to look less and less like the cell they're supposed to be, and that's, what the, that's what's happening there in the grading. So that, so that liver cell that's at a stage that's at four, level four, is, doesn't look anything like a liver cell anymore. It's just, because, it's just a big old cell that just eats, eats, eats. It doesn't do, it's not looking like anything. So, so in the earlier stages, those liver cells might actually still function, may still do some of their job, but they're looking stranger and stranger. And this is a pathologist uh, call on these. And then there's the TNM staging classification and that means the size and the involvement of the tumor. The end portion is the node, meaning whether or not there's lymph involvement. Uh, a lot of cancers will spread throughout the lymphatic system, and depending on how much of that involvement is involved, will go from a zero to three. And then there's a metastasis uh, portion. And so what, you do, what, what happens is you get a number. It might say, like, the worst you can have is a four, three, three in the TNM staging classification. So if you see those numbers in somebody's history, that's what you need to know. So how is cancer treated? Well, the first treatment and the, and the only treatment for most of medical history was surgery. If, did anybody watch John Adams' series on HBO that was on? Um, his daughter, Nabby, in 18, I think it was 13, uh, found a hardening in her, in her breast. Uh, they understood at that time, in, in even, even in the early 1800s, that that was cancer. They also knew that there's only one, cure, one way to, to possibly have a chance to survive, and that was with surgery. 
Unfortunately for Nabby, they didn't have anesthesia, uh, so they could they could give you give you drugs to make like alcohol type things just to just to make it loopy. But mostly you bit down on something while they took a knife and removed her removed her breast in her bedroom. And that was I mean uh, this this was the way this was the way cancer was treated. So if you had a growth or a lump that could be reached by the surgeon. They knew that if you removed it, your chances of survival increased, and then hopefully you didn't die of infections and bleeding and all the other things that could, could occur. And Nabby did live a few, a few more years after that and probably was due to the surgery that she, that she had. And surgery is still used. If there are, if it's an encapsulated, definable tumor, surgery is still done. But the tumor has to be somewhere where you can reach and it has to be defined enough that if we remove it, uh, that, that will help things. But uh, in a lot of cancers, particularly like all the leukemias, there's nothing to remove. There is no tumor to remove. Not all cancers are tumors. Uh, cancers of the lymphatic system, there's nothing to remove. There are no tumors to remove. You have cells that are spreading, cancerous cells that are spreading throughout the body. So there is nothing to surgically remove. So it's actually a minority of well, lung cancers, for example, you can. If they're identified early and found, you can remove them. Sometimes they're spread throughout so much of the lung, they just remove an entire, an entire lung. Um, one, of my, one of my nursing instructors uh, in the 70s, uh, heavy, heavy smoker, and through the 80s, she kept losing more and more of her lung until she was down to like one, one lobe. Um, Along with surgery, though, there's also chemotherapy, and we'll talk more about what chemotherapy is, but basically chemotherapy uh, is often done in conjunction with surgery. So if somebody has surgery done, they don't just say that's it. Nowadays, surgery is followed with chemotherapy, and I'll talk a little more about what the purpose of chemotherapy is. Another, thing, another treatment is radiation. There's bone marrow transplantation, which we, you actually uh, kill off somebody's bone marrow and then replace it with uh, non-cancerous bone, bone marrow, and I'll talk about what the, what the problems are with that. When it works, it's great, but sometimes it doesn't work. And then they're also looking at, and these are, these are more futuristic things, they're not really uh, available, uh, but things like immunotherapies, developing antibodies, developing ways. Remember we talked about that idea of self, non-self for the cancer cell? They're trying to come up with ways so that the antibodies will actually be able to recognize the cancer cell versus a non-cancerous cell, and that will then trigger your own immune system to do that. If we can do that, if that can come along, then that will make a big, big advance in cancer, cancer treatment. Okay, um, surgery removal of the tumor. We also, some of us who were on the oncology unit in, in the children's hospital saw that uh, with the osteogenic sarcomas, uh, because of the cancer in the bone, and it particularly often occurs in the long bones of the leg, and I don't know exactly know why, um, but one of the uh, com very common treatments is to remove that bone. Sometimes the limb can be salvaged. They'll replace the limb with a metal or plastic uh, femur if that's possible. Sometimes it's not. If it, the closer it is to the hip, the less likely that's, that, can be, that can be done. So um, amputations, if, the, if that is the, the only real choice are done, or you remove the tumor surgically. Chemotherapy. What's the word chemotherapy mean? 
I'm asking you, I asked you about neuropathy the other day. Now I'm asking you, what does the word chemotherapy mean? Chemo means chemical, and therapy is treatment. So it just means chemical treatment. If you take a Tylenol for your headache, in a sense, that's chemotherapy. But we don't usually use that term. We usually reserve the word chemotherapy for chemicals that interfere with cell reproduction. And that's what chemotherapies are. They are poisons that interfere with the, somewhere in the cell reproductive cycle. And there's all different stages for a cell to go from one cell to two cell. And in, that, in all those different stages, different chemotherapies are aimed at different ways of interfering with that split, with that growth. You remember in biology, you saw the movies of the cells, you know, going woo, and then it splits into two, and then it splits into four and all of that. And if you can stop that from happening, you then give a chance to, you have a chance to stop cancer. So the idea with chemotherapy is, is that we flood the body with this poison and that the faster growing cells will take up that poison at a, at a rate greater than normal cells their reproduction will be decreased and then we stop the chemical before the normal cells get affected. As you can imagine, that's a very difficult thing to do. I, I, I predict in, you know, in 30 or 40 years, we'll look at this as absolutely barbaric way to, to treat cancer, but right now it's the only, only thing we really have. So it's taking advantage of the fact that these cells, remember I said they just sit around the house and eat all day? Well, when the chemotherapy comes by, they suck it up. And, that's, and that's, we use that to our, to our advantage. The problem is, is that everything is affected. So all cells are affected. What are, these, what are some of the faster cell growing cells in our body? The hair and what else? Nails grow pretty fast and skin and bone marrow those are the fastest growing and so as you see the effects of somebody with chemo who's receiving chemotherapy that's why they look the way they do skin gets very thin very fragile they lose their they lose their hair and they lose all of their white cells and the ability to produce their red cells because those normal cells have been affected from the by the chemotherapy There's different kinds, remember I said the different chemicals affect different points of the cell reproduction. So there are alkylating agents and they actually affect the DNA uh, of, the, of the cancer cells. And some of the ones that you're very likely to see are cytoxin, procarbazine, cisplatin. Most of these drugs, uh, because of the alkylating effects of them, uh, affect pH. They also, they also have a very strong um, uh, mutagenic effect themselves because they are affecting the DNA. They, ca they, can't, they shouldn't be ever sit in the bladder. They, can, they should never be sitting around the kidney. And so all of these drugs require high, high levels of hydration before, during, and after the treatment because of the, because of the effects that they have on the DNA. If they were left to sit around in the kidney, left to sit around in the bladder, you can then start getting secondary tumors in those areas. And so, these, so that's what is done. Also, a lot of pH management is often required. There's the anti-metabolites. And what these are kind of cool, because what they do is they mimic 
other required parts of, of cell metabolism, but they're not, they don't function in that way. So the cancer cell sucks them up, they're needed for the cell reproduction, and, then, and, the, and the right drug isn't there. Uh, the most classic one is methotrexate. It simulates folic acid. So it goes into the cells, the cell thinks it's got folic acid, but now it's not able to um, synthesize its own DNA for reproduction, it stops. Uh, but methotrexate has to be followed with a drug called leucovorin, which is essentially concentrated folic acid. And then what that does then, it's called a rescue drug. So you might hear somebody who's getting methotrexate being given a rescue drug. And what that means is it's high, high levels of folic acid to counteract the effects of the antimetabolite. Some others that you can, might see are the cytosine, uh, arabinoside, the, the mercaptopurine, and the 5AZ is usually what that, that last one is referred to. So if you see these, I'm not going to ask you on a test to identify these, but you just, just should know about some of the, if I talk about nursing things that are involved, you should know that. But I'm not going to ask you, like, which one of these is an antimetabolite, because that's really for oncologists to to worry about, but you should be able to identify them. Even, you know, nowadays, even if you're not working on an oncology unit, you're likely to run into to these, even on a regular medical surgical units. Uh, another interesting one are the plant alkaloids. They get involved with uh, mitosis in the cells. Uh, and these are cool because they actually come from plants. Some, some they were, it was noted, they, they've, there's a lot of work is done all the time going around the world try, trying different, different plants. And there, there are alkaloids in plants that they use to defend themselves uh, from diseases and from predators uh, and, and bugs and things. And they have found to have a, a chemotherapeutic effect. Vincristine and vinblastine are the most, most common there. Um, there's also anti-tumor antibiotics, and what they found here were there certain antibiotics were developed, and in the course of, of studying them, it was found that they also interfered with DNA replication because that was part of the way they killed bacteria, but they also found that they also seemed to be effective at, at killing cancer cells. And so if you notice the name, you remember the mycin drugs? The mycin, gentamicin, you've heard of that? Well, adriamycin, actinomycin, bleomycin, they're all in the same family, but they're a, lot, they're a lot tougher, and these are generally not used as antibiotics because they also have a mutagenic effect if they're around too long. They're also very dangerous in high, in high doses. Um, we even use drugs that you might be familiar with, like prednisone. Now, prednisone uh, is, is, commonly, is commonly used for, for a lot of things, but in high enough doses, it also alters DNA transcription. And it's usually not used by itself as a chemotherapy, but it's used in conjunction with a lot of the, with a lot of the others. So don't be surprised if you have anybody with cancer, you see them also getting prednisone. That's the reason why. It's actually part of their chemotherapy, chemotherapy protocol. Uh, another thing is some enzymes that are being, uh, that have been discovered that also affect DNA synthesis, and L-asparaginase is, is, is um, one of the more common enzymes. All right, this is a good place to stop for today. When we, when we pick up uh, on Friday, we'll start talking about the effects of chemotherapy.